0: A permutation of the bubonic plague, which back in 541 CE demolished the Byzantine Empire, killing an estimated 30 to 50 million people, which at the time was a significant portion of the total population of the planet resurfaced in europe in 1347 gaining new monikers the black death and the great mortality among them and killed another 75 to 200 million people mostly in eurasia and north africa over the course of just a handful of years though it continued to recur in these regions for the next several centuries the city of london was hit especially hard by these recurrences experiencing new outbreaks every 10 years or so, between 1348 and 1665, with 40 serious outbreaks and a lot of smaller ones recorded during that period. And though the people living during this time didn't have germ theory or even a real concrete sense of why this kept happening, why people kept dying in horrible ways on such a regular basis, they did, mostly through trial and error, figure out that proximity was part of the equation, and thus came up with early versions of quarantine and social distancing. Folks who were coming in from other regions were kept on their ships at port for periods of time to allow any diseases present in the people manning those ships to run their course before they were allowed ashore. And people who came down with the telltale swollen lymph nodes, or buboes, of the bubonic plague were isolated in their homes, A bale of hay strung up outside to indicate the person living there was sick with this affliction, and if you were infected and moving about in public, you had to carry a white pole so that other people would know and would be able to keep their distance from you. The degree to which this recurring plague was destabilizing, though, even with the slow introduction of these helpful policies, cannot be overstated. Every 10 years or so, when a new pandemic wave occurred, about 20% of the population was killed. One in five people died almost every decade in one of these waves. Imagine trying to understand that kind of reality, but also imagine trying to govern, trying to think about having a family, running a business, caring about things other than bare survival and subsistence. It boggles the mind. The Great Plague of 1665 was the last of these pandemic waves in London, and it killed something like 100,000 people in somewhere between 7 to 18 months, depending on which numbers you use. Though either way, that was a quarter of the city's total population at the time, and upgraded versions of those previous efforts, forcibly keeping people who were sick locked in their homes and painting a red cross on their doors, digging mass graves, These things eventually paid off, though the cost was, of course, extraordinarily high. The bubonic plague continued to kill at a lower level worldwide until modern times, and before a plague vaccine and antibiotics were developed to help stave off the worst impacts of this still-functioning and spreading disease, there was a third wave that hit China and the rest of Asia hard, killing around 10 million people in India alone in the late 19th century before spreading to all inhabited continents and killing tens to hundreds of thousands of people in cities as diverse and distant as Hong Kong, Sydney, and San Francisco leading into the early 1900s. The Spanish flu, in contrast, really kicked off in March of 1918 in the central U.S., in Kansas, though by then it had already spread globally very rapidly because of World War I, which ended that same year. The first identification of a potentially pandemic-capable disease was at an army camp, which implied that this flu was already circulating broadly around the world, as World War I brought people from a huge swath of the nations that existed at the time to centralized locations, where they then attempted to kill each other while also spreading contamination of various sorts everywhere they went. And shortly after this identification, the disease was found in soldiers internationally, from the U.S. to Spain to Italy to modern-day Ukraine and India and Japan. By June that same year, Chinese officials were reporting local cases, and by July, so about five months after that initial case was reported in Kansas, it was in Australia, though by that point this first wave was beginning to recede. And notably, this first wave of what became known as the Spanish flu, because reporting on it was initially censored in most other nations, so the earliest public reporting many people saw about it came from Spain. This first wave wasn't a huge deal in terms of death, as a lot of people got it, and it sucked for them, but most survived and the flu-related death toll in the U.S. was at about 75,000 in the first six months of 1918, which is compared to about 63,000 during the first six months of 1915, so more deadly than the typical flu, but not massively so. That changed in the latter half of 1918, when a second wave began to spread, probably but not definitively, arriving at international ports from France, This wave, like the first one, spread globally quickly, and it again cleared out fairly rapidly, having mostly fizzled by December of 1918. But unlike the first one, this wave killed a lot more people, and not just the elderly and otherwise immunocompromised. It killed 292,000 people in the U.S. between September and December alone, which is more than 10 times the number killed by the flu during the same period in 1915. Some areas were hit even harder. India, for instance, suffered an estimated 12.5 to 20 million deaths in the final quarter of 1918. The Spanish flu's third wave began in Australia in early 1919, killing 12,000 people right after maritime quarantine was lifted and then spread to Europe and North America. And this one was less deadly than the second wave but still killed hundreds of thousands of people especially those living in the larger cities that were developing and expanding at this point in history the fourth wave of the spanish flu hit primarily large cities in the u.s northern europe and some parts of south america and those smaller than the second and third waves was still twice as deadly as the first a lot of newer pandemic regulations helped in this regard but the expansion of globalization practices the interconnection of the planet basically post-world war one and the increasing levels of urbanization around the world getting more people into denser cities kept flogging this disease and allowed it to stick around longer even beyond the bounds of typical flu seasons the spanish flu pandemic is generally considered to have ended in 1920 And by 1921, flu fatality levels were back down to where they were pre-Spanish flu. And the generally accepted explanation for why it ended the way it did, after about 18 months and four main waves, give or take, is that societies got better at implementing pandemic-dampening regulations and norms, like wearing masks and keeping one's distance from sick people, while the disease itself slowly evolved to become more transmissible and less deadly, over time. What I'd like to talk about today is our current, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic at a moment in which it looks possible we could be moving into a new stage, but at a moment in which what that new stage might look like is still unclear. (music) You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from BBC News, and it's entitled Rise in UK Infections Driven by BA2 Omicron COVID Variant. After nearly two years of infection cycles, including one major surge that was catalyzed by what became known as the Delta variant, COVID-19 infections were beginning to trend downward at the tail end of 2021, leading to some optimistic predictions that we might be coming to the end of the main wave of the pandemic leading into 2022, which could then tip us into an exit from the main body of this sequence into something more manageable and endemic basically something more akin to what we see with the flu today, where it still comes back regularly, even predictably, and kills some people every year, alongside the discomfort and inconvenience it causes to many more people annually. But it's no longer a deadly pandemic in the way the bubonic plague was in the past, or COVID-19 has been for most of its existence thus far. Unfortunately, this was not to be the case. As a variant of COVID called B11529, which later became known as Omicron, was detected in South Africa in late November 2021 and went on to surge throughout the region at a fairly spectacular rate before spreading internationally, leading some governments to close their borders to flights from the southern part of Africa, only to find that by the time they acted, it was way too late, and the planet is so interconnected that such closures probably would have been ineffective anyway. What happened next was stunning as the Omicron variant swept across the planet, making previous peak infection levels look laughably small in comparison. It was later determined that Omicron multiplies about 70 times faster than the Delta variant did, in the lung airways, but doesn't penetrate as deeply in the lower lung tissue, and that lower lung tissue penetration was part of what made earlier variants more debilitating and deadly. So Omicron infections have been about 91% less fatal than Delta on average, and carry a 51% lower risk of hospitalization. But that higher rate of multiplication in hosts and centralization in the upper portion of hosts' respiratory systems means that Omicron has also been about twice as likely to infect new hosts. People infected with Delta would infect about 4% of the people they came into contact with outside their home, on average, while people infected with Omicron can be expected to infect about 8% of the same. Omicron also showed some resistance to existing immunity in potential new hosts, meaning even if you had previously been infected and had some immunity from that, or if you had received vaccinations, Omicron was still able to set up shop in your body, which is possible with any disease and any strain of COVID, but Omicron had a much higher likelihood of doing so compared to Alpha, the original strain, and Delta, the more deadly strain that came later booster shots thankfully continue to provide a good degree of protection against infection even from omicron and a very high level of protection against hospitalization and death from all variants but the numbers across the board have lowered in terms of immunity and protection because of omicron and it's more spread less death nature now the nice thing If anything can be said to be a silver lining when we're talking about a disease that is still killing and internally maiming a lot of people worldwide every day, is that Omicron's global tidal wave has left more people with at least some resistance against future infection. And again, it's less likely to result in serious health outcomes long term than other variants. So although the number of hospitalizations and deaths and instances of long COVID symptoms are still very high. They're not as high as they could have been had a more deadly variant like Delta washed through at that scale instead. And there's a chance that future variants will have more trouble playing the same trick because of the amount of low-level latent immunity that now exists in many populations globally. We find ourselves then at a stage in which, although there are a handful of isolated, very worrying infection waves happening primarily in places that previously avoided such outcomes by implementing draconian lockdowns and aiming for COVID-0 strategies like China, Hong Kong, South Korea, and New Zealand, most of the rest of the world has been enjoying a steady downward slope of infection, hospitalization, and death numbers which has led to a new surge of optimism that we may have a nice period of time before the next variant arises during which we can let our guard down a bit. And maybe, just maybe, we might be looking at the beginning of the end, where COVID goes the way of the Spanish flu, not disappearing, not wiped out, but becoming a manageable, tolerable thing, at least by the modern standards for endemic diseases that we've grown accustomed to. The monkey wrench being thrown into that story, though, is an Omicron subvariant, so a variant of a variant, currently called BA2, with the vanilla Omicron, often referred to as BA1, in this context. Remember that BA1 Omicron was already massively more infectious than earlier versions of COVID, which itself was very infectious. BA2, based on the data we have so far, seems to be about 30% more infectious than BA1, which is part of how this subvariant was recognized in the first place, as the decline in infection numbers in some areas slowed and even perked back up for a while, raising concerns that the seeming end of the Omicron wave might not be finished yet, and in fact might bump back up into another wave, which is a very disconcerting thought. As of the day I'm recording this, an estimated 1 in 20 people in the UK are infected and officials are weighing when and how to deploy a second booster shot, which would mean a fourth vaccine shot in total for older and other at-risk people, before potentially making the same available to everyone to keep slowly declining immunity levels up. Complicating matters, though, are political and bureaucratic tides that are pushing most nations, to some degree or another, toward opening back up and removing a lot of the restrictions and rules and services that have been associated with the pandemic thus far. Said another way, we are looking at a potential new wave led by a sub-variant of a disease that might be more infectious than one of the most infectious diseases we've ever seen, Omicron, which recently infected a significant portion of the total global human population. And because that recent wave has substantially diminished, the political will to keep testing and distributing vaccines and funneling time and money and political activity into the issue of preventing future outbreaks has largely disappeared, or rather it's been redistributed to other concerns. And on its face, this redistribution of time and attention and resources is not a terrible idea. The pandemic has arguably stolen a lot of time and resources and attention from other vitally important issues that have largely been backburnered for the past two years. And it makes sense to want to shift some of those resources back to these other things, both because politicians want to segue away from at times quite unpopular restrictions and expenditures, but also because it's just an absolute bummer to keep locking stuff down and to focus all of our everything on just one issue. We need at some point to recalibrate away from a posture of absolute pandemic readiness. And the argument right now is that this is that moment. This is that opportunity. And it's time to reestablish something akin to normal now that we've got the opportunity to do so. The counter argument to this shift is that we are not out of the woods yet. And even if we were, the idea of just collapsing all the pandemic infrastructure that we've cobbled together, like it's a tent and we're done camping, so we can just put it all away and not think about it ever again, is a terrible idea. Instead, this argument goes, we should be doubling down on what we've built and create a system so that ideally, the next pandemic never happens. But if and when it does, or if this one continues, we will be ready and suffer far fewer deaths and other negative consequences because of that readiness. We are setting ourselves up to be caught off guard again, basically, because we can't maintain focus long enough to root these systems into the bedrock of our societies. And we really need to be able to do that. Otherwise, what happened in early 2020 and for the past two years will just keep happening. We'll have to start fresh every time. So while some people are very keen to just move on and forget, understandably, I would argue, that's just asking for future destruction and pain, according to this argument. And while it may be politically and economically unpopular and inexpedient to even consider this, we should really be maintaining focus for a bit longer so we can put permanent structures in place and swap out most of the temporary, hastily thrown-together tents as we do so. There's a broader base of exhaustion with all this, though, that's playing into those higher-level political decisions. According to many polls, we're reaching a point at which even folks who have been diehard with their pandemic prudence are beginning to waver and consider the possibility that we might just have to live with some aspect of this for the foreseeable future. A far-from-ideal scenario, obviously, but one that becomes thinkable even when it wasn't thinkable half a year ago because of everything we've lost and could continue to lose if things keep going as they're going now. As part of that larger sense of, I'm done with this, we're seeing new vaccination levels drop pretty much across the board. Which is unfortunately the opposite of what would ideally be happening if we actually want to move away from pandemic era limitations. But that paired with slowly diminishing immunity levels from previous infections and vaccinations, paired with massively more infectious variants and subvariants, paired with the sudden drop in pandemic regulations and rules, are all aggregating into bumps of infection levels. Primarily in the UK and Europe and a few other nations thus far, but over the past few years, what happens in those areas tend to then happen in other, interconnected parts of the world a few weeks later. And the current concern is that these bumps will be more than small increases, will spiral into a new wave powered by a more infectious subvariant, And that will then spread around the world at a moment in which we are in some ways weaker than we've been in a long time because of the lapse in pandemic attention and focus and investment. None of this is destiny, though, and those same variables that are contributing to this bounce are making it tricky to know if we are looking at the beginning of a new wave or just seeing the consequences of suddenly dropping essentially all pandemic regulations all at once, which would be expected to cause at least a small bounce in the numbers. We don't have a good sense of what's causing these new bumps, in other words, so while they could be warning bells heralding a new horrible state of affairs, these numbers could also be nothing. Or a very small something that goes away quickly as things settle into a new type of normal with fewer restrictions and a disease that is still present but less front of mind for many of us. As I record this, about 35% of new U.S. COVID cases are caused by the BA.2 subvariant, though U.S. infection numbers are still dropping overall. The percentage of infections that are BA.2 related is thought to be even higher in other parts of the world, like the U.K. and a half dozen European countries, where overall infection numbers have been surging. That said, Public health officials have been generally saying that they don't expect a major surge at the moment, which is heartening, but also something that they've said before, which then at times has turned out to be incorrect, so we'll see. From where we're standing now, we don't know if COVID will go out like the bubonic plague or go out like the Spanish flu. In the former case, dropping off periodically, but then returning in full force, perhaps with new variants that have incubated in the meantime killing off significant portions of the human population with waves that arise every decade or so, and in the latter case, evolving into something less harmful over time, but sticking around and continuing to menace us at a relatively lower level essentially forever. Neither case is ideal, but the former, the plague case, is a lot less ideal than the latter, flu case. And unfortunately, there's a good chance that anyone who claims to be able to say which way it will go right now is either deluded or lying. We just don't know enough to be able to say one way or another with any certainty quite yet. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe, by Matthew Gabriel and David Perry. This history book was a fun read in that it takes something that you may think you know about, a very specific chunk of time in European history, and illustrates why the common assumption about what have become known as the Dark Ages are not necessarily true. And why they're not necessarily true, and why we tend to think of them in the way that we do. Some of the more recent discoveries that have challenged that idea that there was an overall slump in terms of creativity and development and technology and everything else during this period of time, and why that idea has persisted for so long as we've continued to flesh out our idea of history more holistically. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of *The Bright Ages* by Matthew Gabriel and David Perry. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.